0: This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years, and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife. New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen.
1: Welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, your host from Ringler Associates Northeast Operations. I want to thank you again for joining us today. Remember, you can find all Ringler Radio shows on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or on thelegaltalknetwork.com. And uh, importantly, you can also listen to Ringler Radio and get CLE credit on law.com's CLE Center. That's a mouthful. Well, today we're bringing you a show from our AAJ 2007 Annual Convention in Chicago, the American Association for Justice. They used to be called ATLA. They're now in Chicago this year, uh, a wonderful city to have a convention in. I hope every, everyone gets a chance to come out here because Chicago is looking really spiffy. Uh, we're also going to have with us a co-host, and that's going to be Nolan Robinson. He's a great ringler associate from our Portland, Oregon office. And, uh, Nolan, thanks for joining us.
2: Glad to be here, Larry.
1: Well, uh, first of all, did I pronounce Oregon correctly? Because I know you guys get very touchy out there.
2: Well, uh, I would say that was passable, yeah.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to work on it. I'll I'll definitely work (laughs) on it. Uh, I'd also like to welcome our special guest today, Attorney Susan Saladoff from the law firm of Davis, Hearn, Saladoff, Bridges, and Visser in Ashland, Oregon. Attorney Saladoff's firm has been in business in Southern Oregon for over 50 years, although she looks a lot younger, and uh, their practice is focused on medical malpractice cases for the past 20 years. She's also a member of the bar in Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland as well. Uh, Can't you just settle down, Susan? You're traveling all over the place here. She's also very active in a number of organizations and served as past president of the Trial Lawyers for Public Justice. Welcome to the show, Susan.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Well, I'm glad you're here. Well, today we're going to uh, discuss several important issues that impact some of the important cases that Susan is uh, handling. Uh, One is a wrongful death case where a decision from the Oregon Supreme Court is expected soon about whether... The cap on non economic damages is constitutional or unconstitutional. And another case uh, which uh, impacts a lot of the work that Susan does is one that involves a baby's brain damage after surgery. And uh, it's a tort claims case about limiting payment from uh, individual doctors and how that works vis a vis the hospital and the doctors. Susan will get into that in a second. But uh, let's start with the case involving statutory caps on the awards uh, in that Hughes versus Peace Health case. Why don't you fill us in on the details of that case and uh, what that's all about?
3: Well, first of all, I, I want to make a distinction between uh, wrongful death cases and general negligence cases in Oregon. Um, we had a cap previously on all non- non-economic damages and all types of personal injury cases up until the Lakin case was uh, decided, which was a case that was, that found that the caps generally are unconstitutional on all types of personal injury cases. Wrongful death cases, however, um, did not fit into that case because, um, for years there's been an argument that there was no common law of wrongful death. So that pri- at the time that the constitution of Oregon was established, that there was not a common law claim for wrongful death. And as a result, wrongful death has been a statutory claim. And because it's a statutory claim, the courts have upheld a cap of $500,000 on non-economic damages. Uh, One of our leading attorneys in Oregon, Catherine Clark, has been trying to overturn that cap in a variety of cases. But this is the first time in this Hughes versus Peace Health case where the um, Oregon Supreme Court has taken cert, and the issue is solely the uh, whether or not the five hundred thousand dollar cap is constitutional, and whether, in fact, there was a common law action. Uh, for wrongful death. And uh, the case was actually argued in November of 2006, so it's been a very long time for a decision, which makes some of us a little nervous. Um, The sort of thought out there is that there might be a dissent uh, that's being written, which is why we haven't heard yet. But I am very hopeful that that cap will be overturned because I have a case that's going to trial in September of this year where that cap is directly related. And, of course, there are many, many cases uh, where this cap is uh, is significant. And so many people are actually filing lawsuits now, including a wrongful death common law claim to preserve that action if the court does overturn yeah, it.
1: Anticipating the result coming
3: down from the exactly. court.
2: Exactly. Good. Well, well, Susan, when the Oregon uh, Supreme Court decision comes down in this case, it will be precedent-setting. Um, so what are the big picture ramifications to the case?
3: Well, um, it's interesting, and maybe it would be helpful if I explain the case that I have right now that's going to trial because we're trying to settle the case. But the issue is, do we settle it within the cap? Do we not settle it within the cap? Um, I have a case right now. It's in. It's a wrongful death of a baby. It didn't start out as a wrongful death case. Um, it was a. Uh, it's a case that's actually from Klamath, started in Klamath Falls, Oregon. A baby was born with an imperforate anus. So. He literally had a piece of tissue covering his anus when he was born. Unfortunately, there was a traveling nurse who was caring for this baby And uh, the traveling nurse thought that the regular nurse was doing the newborn initial assessment, and the the nurse who was the normal nurse thought the traveling nurse was doing the newborn initial assessment. And unfortunately, no one did the newborn initial assessment, and so it was not determined until after 10 hours that the baby had this piece of tissue over his anus, which basically made him have an obstructed bowel. Um, the baby was fed during the day, which is a complete no-no when you have an obstruction because if you feed a baby and there's no place for it to go, what's going to happen? Which is what happened. The baby's stomach started to distend, gas built up. As the baby cries during the day, all of that starts to gurgle. And by the time that they evaluated the baby late at night, about 10 hours later, uh, the baby was in distress and his stomach was quite large. They could not do the surgery at the local hospital. They helicoptered the baby to Oregon Health Sciences University, which is in Portland, and we're going to talk about another case that affects that part of the case. Unfortunately, they didn't do surgery immediately, which they thought they were going to do. They let the baby stay for a day and a half, and the baby's intestines ruptured. And so he wound up losing almost all of his intestines. He had to have a colostomy. He developed sepsis from all of the infection that developed. And he lived with tubes and infection for 15 months, and then he died.
1: You know, it's amazing. I've heard a lot of birth defect cases, that's the first impression to me. I've never heard of that uh, flap over the, uh, the closing. That's and it's a very, a
3: ve- very simple procedure. Yeah. Had it been diagnosed, it was really just a cut of the, it was a, it was a very simple yeah. and uh, procedure that could have uh, corrected that. But so in my case, even though this baby lived for 15 months in horrendous pain and suffering, um, if the wrongful death cap is upheld, the maximum that my clients can receive for the baby's pain and suffering during that 15 months is $500,000. And of course, if it's overturned, I think that that pain and suffering is worth a substantially large, uh, larger sum.
1: Well, I'm sure you're waiting with uh, great anticipation, the Supreme Court ruling. And in the meantime, good luck with that case. It sounds, sounds uh, tragic. Uh, what's the general environment for med mal cases in Oregon, Susan? Has it have there, Has there been a groundswell? Uh, most of these cases are getting settled, I would assume. But what about in trial? Uh, many jurisdictions you see, it's very tough to win these med mal cases today.
3: And it is as well in Oregon. Um, I'm, I, I moved to Oregon nine and a half years ago. I practiced for 15 years in Washington, D.C., and Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um And when I moved to the jurisdiction that I live in now, which is in the southern part of the state, no one was doing any medical malpractice. In fact, I am the only lawyer at this point who specializes in medical malpractice within maybe a 200-mile radius. So uh, there are some lawyers in Eugene, Oregon, which is about three hours north of me, and then some lawyers in the northern part of the state in Portland, of course, who do medical malpractice. But even so, my estimate, and I'm just taking a guess, there are probably only about maybe 10 or 12 lawyers in the whole state that I Think really specialize and really primarily do medical malpractice. So it's still a relatively limited amount. And the reason for that is because it's still very difficult to win one of these cases. One of the things that is distinct in Oregon is that we do not have any expert discovery. Uh, that is extremely unusual. Very unusual. I, you yeah. know, we're still the Wild West and mm-hmm. people say, you know, we try cases, uh, it's, you know, trial by fire. What that means is that not only do we not have any expert reports, we don't even know who the expert is.
1: It's like surprise
3: trial. Exactly. It has uh, its positives and its negatives. The positives are that we don't have any depositions of experts. So the costs of bringing these cases is substantially lower than in a lot of other jurisdictions. When I practiced in Washington, D.C. and Maryland, I spent all of my time taking depositions of experts or defending my depositions, my experts' depositions, and it was very expensive.
1: That's actually a cottage industry under itself, these experts coming in, testifying, depositions. Oregon's experience you 've had both now how do you How do you find oregon 's experience with this more surprise scenario versus all these depots
3: Well, I actually like the system that i 'm in now. Uh, the reason Ooh. I like it is because i don 't have to spend as much money on my cases, mm-hmm. which is a huge difference. I can take a case. Uh, that might be worth a little bit less but really needs to be brought because the negligence and the injury is, is substantial, but yet it might not be the kind of case that I would have to take in, uh, on the East Coast because of the costs involved so I can spend less money. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's so interesting is that because there aren't depositions of experts, the defendants and the defendants' experts don't know what they're each going to say. I usually, because we always have to keep costs low, I may only bring in one expert per specialty. But the other side, they love to bring in multiple experts per specialty.
1: I, I, can, spell, I can hear a contradiction of uh, experts coming here. You exactly. Know.
3: They don't know what each is going to say. And because they haven't read a deposition, they get up on the witness stand. And oftentimes, they contradict each other. And exactly. I have won cases that way. Um, you know, when I first got to Oregon, I had to try all my cases. But then, after I started getting good verdicts now i haven 't had to try as many cases as I did initially, and part of it is because they know that i 'm going to put good experts on the witness stand
1: that 's called reputation you 're developing a reputation well that 's terrific, and you know I think our audience hearing uh, the difference in the way the jurisdiction in Oregon treats experts and uh, pretrial uh, discovery is going to be an eye opener because a lot of people around the rest of the country i don 't know if they 're really familiar with that so you might get, if people like that, you might get a lot more lawyers moving to Oregon, so watch out, you know? Anyway, let's talk about another case that uh, has had a pretty big impact uh, out there in Oregon, this Clark versus Oregon Health and Science uh, University case, uh, where the uh, brain-damaged baby after heart surgery uh, came up. Evidently, there were two defendants in the case. Uh, the hospital was sued uh, on behalf of the plaintiff and the individual doctors were also sued, Uh and that gave rise to a whole, the whole issue of who can get sued and who can fall behind the other uh, the other's protection. Why don't you talk about the details of that case and what the issue is in that case from sure. your perspective?
3: The main issue in this case is um, Oregon Health Science University, which is our major teaching hospital in Portland, uh, has a very good uh, reputation, and uh, and a lot of uh, patients go there for specialties. You know, like when they can't get. Uh, Certain types of care in other rural parts of the, of the state, they'll sure. be sent up to Oregon Health Sciences. Oregon Health Sciences University at some point uh, got the distinction of being a government entity. Even though it is not technically a government entity, it has gotten some funding, but it is really a private hospital. But it has the statutory immunity similar to a, another government type of entity. And so we have a Tort Claims Act like every state does, mm-hmm. um, and, and Oregon Health Sciences University has been under our Oregon Tort Claims Act. And what that means is that there is a cap on the amount of money that you can get for any case that's brought under the Oregon ta- Tort Claims Act. The cap is a maximum of $200,000 per claimant, um, um, against each defendant so, or per claimant, excuse me, so if you have just one claimant who 's injured and you bring a case against uh, Oregon health sciences, and you can only get the two hundred thousand if your medical expenses or your specials are one hundred thousand dollars or more okay
1: so you 've already eaten up one hundred thousand of the two hundred
3: right so you got a hundred thousand dollars of specials in order to get to a two hundred thousand dollar yeah. cap. With a maximum total of 500000 So the only way you get to the 500000 is if you have three claimants. Because if you have two, the maximum you can get is 400000 right. If you've got, like in my case, the same case I was telling you about before, I've got two parents plus the estate. So I can get an up to $500,000. And that's the absolute maximum I could ever get against Oregon Health Science University. And you also have to file, of course, notice claims and so on. This case, in this case, um, they also sued the individual doctors. Mm. And uh, what the court, the court of Appeals of Oregon held is that doctors did not have immunity at common law. So even though if you sue the entity, you have the cap. But if you sue the individual doctor, then there is no cap, which is huge. Except... In my case or any other case where it's also wrongful death, because if you sue a doctor, like in my case that I just told you about sure. before where I'm suing, where I'm going to trial in September, I didn't sue Oregon Health Sciences. I only sued the two individual doctors. But they're claiming that the Clark case doesn't apply to my case because it's also a wrongful death case. And so there was no wrongful death uh, common law claim, so there couldn't ne- be no wrongful death common law claim against individual doctors, and so I have got both. So I really need both of these cases <laughs> to come down in my favor you in order a, to win.
1: You need a perfect storm to develop where these, the, both these cases, come down on your side. Right. That's I
3: have happening. positive energy. I think that's going to happen. We're, we're
1: going to sit here with a little seance after okay. after the show.
2: You know, there's been a lot of coverage on that on that uh, that case in particular, and the suit sought damages for. Permanent total life and health care in, in the amount of eleven million dollars, uh, damages for lost earning capacity of uh, about one point two million, and non economic damages in the amount of uh, five million dollars. So, where has it gone from there?
3: Well, the the reason why that the the court of appeals actually um, held the way it did in the Clark case was because um, when when uh, uh, the legislature. Develops a statute and creates a statute that um, where there was a where there was a cause of action at common law. If they're going to create statutory law, it has to be a a a reasonable substitute. It can't take away the rights that people had at common law. And in this case, you're right. the the five hundred thousand. Actually, in this case, I think there was only one claimant, so it was two hundred thousand. And what they said was that the two hundred thousand dollar cap. Uh, under the Oregon Tort Claims Act, was not a reasonable substitute. In that case, when you've got the kind of injury that that claimant had, and with medical bills that were, and, and with a a potential real jury award that is up to five million dollars, and I think I think that there was actually a, a stipulation as to from both sides as to what the real non economic worth of that case was. Mm. And because of that stipulation, as I recall, the $200,000 was so vastly smaller than what the real value of the non-economic damages that the court held it wasn't a reasonable substitute. And that's the same in my case, even though I've got this little wrongful death little caveat with it. In my case, with a baby who lives for 15 months with tubes and horrible pain, and the maximum that we could get is $500,000 versus we asked for, I don't remember, I don't have the claim in front of me, but a substantially larger amount, that again, it's not a reasonable substitute for what the claim would have been at common law.
1: Well, it's interesting to, to see what the ramifications of all this will be. In a more global sense, in Oregon, for example, uh, I'm sitting here listening to you. If the court holds that wrongful death, the cap will go away because of the unconstitutionality of that cap on wrongful death, being being that it's statutory, they lift that. Right now, it looks like in the other case, you had to sue doctors to get around the hospital's immunity issues. You know, doctors. I assume are being sued as independent contractors, not as employees of the hospital. I mean, there are a lot of ramifications here. If the cap goes away on wrongful death, would it would it then uh, stand to reason that you would you would sue hospitals more than you would doctors in that sense?
3: No. Remember that the Clark case only the issue about suing the doctor versus the hospital only. Applies when the hospital is a public entity. entity. And so if I'm suing another hospital, like my local hospital, a private hospital, a private hospital that wouldn't apply. And okay. then I can sue the hospital and and so and none of what I'm, we're talking about would be applicable well, to that. You could
1: sue the you could sue the private hospital, but you'd still be limited by the wrongful death cap at this point.
3: At this point right. the answer to that is right. yes, but if the wrongful death cap is lifted, then the then uh, then in all wrongful death cases regardless of who you sue, it's right. lifted and that's going to create a bit of a problem I think for the insurance industry sure. in Oregon.
1: But also also for doctors because, you know, let's say they're practicing in a in an immunity hospital, a public hospital. You can't sue the public hospital because you're, you know, you got those immunity issues or cap issues. So you go after the doctors, the doctors would raise the wrongful death, you know, cap. Now they can't raise it anymore, so the doctors are in jeopardy there.
3: And that's a big deal because mm-hmm. in Oregon we have what are called health districts. There are a lot of rural communities on the coast in, you know, eastern Oregon, where they have basically recruited doctors to come to those areas and they hold those doctors under the Tort Claims Act. And so one of the benefits to those doctors in those small rural communities is they have a cap. And under this Clark case, well, actually, more importantly, under the Hughes case... And also, if the—I mean—the Clark case also has to come down in our yeah, favor. They're
1: piggybacked, Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But
3: under the Hughes case, if the wrongful death cap is lifted, then those doctors, you know, do have more of—they uh, will have liability that they wouldn't have had as well if the Clark case also comes down. Yeah. In our no, favor. it's
1: it's 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 a, it's somewhat complex, but but it it it's clear that doctors are in a worse position if these verdicts come down. I mean, if these uh, decisions come down the way that. You'd like to see them yeah. in terms of their liability and, and, and what they're at risk for. And therefore, insurance companies who, who insure them would also want to rethink the whole process. So the very, I, very interesting.
3: The way I like to look at it is that victims of medical malpractice are in a better position and are able to get justice that they were unable to get before if these cases come down the way they should come down.
1: I like that a lot better. That's a better way to put it. Very good. Well, let's take a short break right now. And uh, when we come right back... We'll get some more thoughts from our uh, very interesting guest, uh, Susan Saladoff, from the great state of Oregon.
0: This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $18 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to RinglerAssociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Did you know that the Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE, including Ringler Radio? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLEcenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit.
1: Welcome back to Ring the Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, your host, and I'm joined today by attorney Susan Saladoff, uh, a wonderful uh, medical malpractice attorney from Southern Oregon, one of the few, I understand, that's down there practicing right now. Although if they uh, if they lift these caps, you might have a few more lawyers down there trying to trying to take your business away. Also, we have a great co-host, Nolan Robinson, who's our Ringler associate from the Portland, Oregon office. Uh, Nolan, is it uh, is the weather nice out there this uh, beautiful day?
2: It is uh, eighty-five, ninety degrees and sunny and and beautiful. Don't don't tell anybody.
3: Okay,
1: no. I know you're lying, so that that's that's fine, no problem.
3: You're supposed to tell everybody it's raining all the time.
2: Yeah, I know. Too late. I, I, I'm just too honest. Uh, well, Susan, um, we've been talking about some interesting issues at stake in the in the practice area of uh, medical malpractice law in Oregon involving specific cases, but uh, there are some more general issues that, that affect trial lawyers and plaintiffs. Uh, for example, informal interviewing of plaintiffs subsequent treating physicians uh, once plaintiff places injuries at issue in a case. Uh, so what's going on with that issue?
3: Well, that's very interesting. Uh, About a month and a half ago, I got a call from a defense lawyer in one of my, I have a breast, a delayed diagnosis of breast cancer case. And the lawyer said that uh, he'd like to uh, call my client's subsequent treating physicians uh, informally without my being there or without my client being there. And I said, excuse me? (laughs) And he says, well, you know that this is the law now in Oregon and that once you take the deposition of the defendant, physician, or healthcare provider that you have waived or your client has waived the doctor-patient privilege and that we're entitled to do this. I thought that was interesting that he was calling me and asking my permission if he actually thought that he had uh, a legal authority to do that. But nevertheless, I said, no, I absolutely disagree and um, I am unwilling to consent to that and you need to file a motion. And he was very upset about it. Nevertheless, he filed a motion, and, and attached to his motion were many, many orders from judges around the state of Oregon granting exactly the issue that he was was requesting. Of course, I did my own research and found yet another set of lot of orders with exactly the opposite. Right. And, um, of course, many of them are also hinging on HIPAA. Now that HIPAA has a stat, is in existence in the last several years, you know, there's a whole issue of privacy privacy in that way. So anyway, uh, he filed his, his motion and I filed my opposition. And what was so interesting is that the, we had an oral argument and the judge, it was in a small, uh, jurisdiction in Corvallis, Oregon, which is, um, Benton County. And the judge who was the uh, was the judge in, on this issue had ruled on this issue six months ago, and he had ruled against me. He had ruled that yes, the informal interviews were were allowed once you waive this privilege, and I argued and uh, and I'll tell you some of my arguments anyway. I was unbelievably he changed his mind, and he now ruled, at least in my case, that. What they should do is take the deposition of the subsequent treating physician as opposed to these informal interviews. Mm -hmm. So let me just tell you, if I can, for a minute what the arguments are because I frankly find this outrageous and one of my – I don't know whether it won the day, but – what I said to the judge at the end of the argument, I said, you know, when I was a first-year law student, I had this contracts professor, and he, whenever he would call on me, um, I'd give him my reasons, and, and, and one of my reasons was always, but it's just not fair. You know? <laughs> and he used to laugh at me, but sometimes, you know, that wins the day, and I said to this judge, you know, I don't know, there is something fundamentally unfair about a defense lawyer calling a subsequent treating physician. It may not be subsequent. It may be a current treating physician and informally interviewing that person about that person's care of your client without there being any checks and balances, without knowing, because remember, we also don't have expert discovery in Oregon. So if this witness turns out to be one of my experts, now they're getting potentially some free information that they wouldn't be able to get. But think about the chilling effect You know, you've got a doctor that you're seeing and now when the next and then then the defense attorney on this case you've brought is interviewing that person, then you come back to that doctor and isn't there an uncomfortable feeling whose side is this doctor on? Right. Not to mention the fact that we have only two major insurance companies that insure doctors in our state. And what's interesting is that if I, as the plaintiff's attorney, try to go interview the doctor, they call their insurance company and have an attorney present while I'm interviewing the doctor. And so but
1: that I, ma- that makes sense, doesn't it, to have but, someone there?
3: But if I can't interview my client's own doctor without an attorney present, why should they?
1: That's right.
3: You know, that's um, the equity
1: and fairness you were talking
3: about. You know, plus, you know, the other issue which is big is that in Oregon, as I hope in many other states. When a plaintiff brings a claim for personal injuries, they're not opening up their entire medical history. They're only opening up their medical history with respect to the injury that they're claiming in that case. So if I have a leg injury, for example, or my client has a leg injury, just because they had a hand injury at some point in the future, that is still subject to the doctor-patient privilege. And so without another person there monitoring it, the doctor may wind up disclosing still privacy issues that they shouldn't, but because they don't know, the doctors don't necessarily know what they can and cannot say. And so anyway, that is an issue that is happening in the state of Oregon. It's being all over and really what needs to happen is for a case to get up to the Supreme Court or for the rulemaking people to come up with a rule, you know.
1: Well, it sounds you know you mentioned HIPAA in the, a little while ago. It sounds like with all the protections you have to have for a piece of paper not to get disclosed and not to be in a in a drawer without a lock and all that for the for for the you know courts there just to allow this willy nilly uh, you know interviews of, of, of subsequent physicians or other treating physicians. It, it seems to fly in the face of that, and I think I'm just sitting here listening to you and I'm saying, well, you're right. It does. It's not fair, and I think. Uh, Maybe I can change it for you. How about that? All right. One other thing. Uh, you've also raised this whole issue again of the lack of, you know, depositions, et cetera, in Oregon, the lack of all this discovery, expert discovery. It, it, so in a way, um, even though you're unique somewhat, you know, I'm sitting here saying, well, maybe, maybe if it was different, if it was more like the norm of most other jurisdictions, you would – some of these issues would go away. You'd have this more uh, – a formal discovery process, depositions of those subsequent treating physicians, et cetera. Do you think that's ever going to change in Oregon? Do you think Do you think that discovery and expert scenario is going to change so that uh, it's, it becomes more like uh, the rest of the uh, of the country?
3: You know, if if I had to bet on it, I'd say no. I think that Oregonians like to be sort of part of the wild west. I don't know, Nola. Maybe you could give your opinion on that. <laughs> but since I've been there, I I think that. That most lawyers like it the way it is. I think the primary motivator for that is the amount of money that we save. Mm-hmm. Both sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, you know, I don't spend more than. I mean, I'd say on average, I probably spend between fifty and hundred thousand dollars bringing a medical malpractice case through trial. My colleagues that oh, yeah. I'm here, I mean, that's a, nothing to them. I mean, they could spend several hundred thousands of dollars. I mean, doctors these days are charging experts are charging what minimum of five hundred, sometimes up to a thousand dollars an hour to sure. participate, and so and then you got traveling associated with that. So and multiple experts, um, I don't think people want to change that in Oregon. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think, Nolan?
2: Well, you know, I mean, Oregon is a is a state that is pretty proud of, of being who they are. So I, you know, I I see for selling. See Susan's point there for sure. Um, and Susan, what, what about uh, other issues? Are there any other issues here in, in Oregon that, uh, or nationally for that matter, that uh, trial lawyers are concerned with?
3: Oh, that's a big, uh, big question. <laughs> that's a
1: very, very small <laughs> little question, Susan. What else in the world are you interested in here talking about?
3: You know, I mean, I think that the propaganda that continues to uh, infect our jury system is huge. Um, you know, it's very difficult to get a fair jury these days. And, you know, we go in with, I used to say one hand tied behind our backs, but now we have two, and we have to really, you know, reinvent the wheel each time to educate jurors uh, that... You know, my, my theory has always been until it affects you personally, you don't get it, right? So right. And until a juror has a family member or someone that has been the victim of malpractice, they really don't understand. They always – and then they just hear the propaganda. You know, it's – doctors are leaving the states. I always want to know where are they going if they're leaving all the states. Where are <laughs> they going to? You know, our insurance premiums are going up and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, but my homeowner's insurance premium is going up too and my, my car insurance premiums going up too. So maybe it doesn't have to do with this. But but maybe it has to do with, you know, something else like our economy. Well, I've
1: also seen you drive, Susan, so maybe that explains it, you, know? Uh,
3: you know, so I think that um, getting a fair jury pool, getting all of our evidence in, uh, I think those are, are still critical questions. And I've been practicing law for 24 years, and I think that the whole tide started turning just as I finished law school.
1: <laughs> well, you know... Uh- what this means, I think, is that the future for what you're going to be doing in Oregon is going to be very exciting because all these changes with these new uh, decisions that are coming down, how they how they rule, how the courts are ruling, you're going to be taken in different directions. It's going, to, I think it's going to be a very exciting time for uh, for lawyers, especially medical malpractice lawyers in Oregon.
3: You know, I've, I'm here at this convention right now, and I've talked to so many lawyers who are saying that they're very discouraged about bringing medical malpractice cases. They're losing a lot of yes, cases. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I do this because... I feel like there are so few people who will stand up and really be i, I think of myself i mean i don 't want to sound you know like i 'm you know the one on the white horse with you know the the the, the shield in front of me and i 'm going charge you know You're right. there are so few people who really can do that or are willing to do it, and sometimes we hit our heads up against the wall, but eventually the tide will turn again, and there have to be people out there who are willing to try to really get justice uh, you know, and the other thing in Southern Oregon, particularly, I hear a lot of times, you know, before I came, there was there were no checks and balances on the medical system in Oregon. And now just the fear of me being out there, right. you know, I think uh, makes a difference. Although I do hear that there, you know, there's a lot of defensive medicine going on. But maybe that's a good thing.
1: Well, maybe it is. And I, I, think, I thank you for, uh, for any, any good you brought to that part of the, the country because Nolan needs a lot of help out there, I'll tell you that. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, listen, it's, uh, it's a wonderful show we've had here today. Susan Saladoff, thank you very much for being our special guest. Uh, if someone wants to reach you, how do they do that, Susan?
3: Um, they could reach me at uh, either ssaladoff at AOL.com. Right. Uh, or my telephone number is 541-482-3111. And there's also a website, davishern.com.
1: Wonderful. And Nolan, how about you? How did somebody uh, get a hold of you?
2: Well, 800-344-7452, and my email is nrobinson at
1: And all of you can look for Nolan on the basketball court, where I understand you're teaching the number one pick in the NBA draft. Uh, some footwork. Is that true, uh, Nolan?
2: I expect to have a big impact on Greg Oden. <laughs>
1: well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, I-, I can't wait to see Greg Oden. Uh, I'm, again, Larry Cohen. I'm your host. Thanks for listening. Go out and have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including all American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.